If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you don't, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen right behind me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, we ask that as we open up the Word of God, you just open up us. You allow us to be open to receive, uh, even if it's not all the points this morning. Maybe there's just going to be one point that you want us to chew on and think about over the course of the week. And so, God, I pray, open up our hearts as we are open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember last week, we finished really almost at a depressing state. You have this big nine-foot giant named Goliath taunting the armies of Israel, and they are afraid, they are fearful, they are filled with anxiety, they are filled with worry, and we went over a lot of those giants that they were going through and sort of how we go through the same. In fact, if you take out your discussion sheet, right there on the front page, I've listed some examples of giants that we may go through, and I've listed some, uh, some definitions of what may qualify for a Goliath in our lives that we may not be uh, aware of. And a lot of times we're not aware of them. A lot of times these Goliaths are not things we easily see. And so in this story, it's the exact opposite. He was very easily seen. In fact, he was the focal point of the Israeli army as they were facing their mortal enemy at that point, an army called the Philistines. And this giant came out and shouted for 40 days and no Israelite would come against him. Now that's an important little note. I'm just gonna deviate for just one little quick second. For those of you who are kind of into the Bible and into how the Bible works and how Jewish numerology works, I'm gonna show you a really neat thing here. The fact that the Bible says that Goliath did this for 40 days is meant for you to go ding, 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 ding. Something in your head's going to go, wait a minute, 40 days? What else happened that had this whole 40 days thing by it? Well, there was Noah, right? The flood, the rains came and it said it rained for 40 days, right? And of course, Moses went up to uh, Mount Sinai, right? Mount Horeb, the mountain of God for 40 days you know we have Goliath he's shouting and taunting the armies of Israel for 40 days and then there's Jesus right he was in the wilderness tempted by the devil for 40 days okay you may say yeah that's right Tom what does that all that have in common I'll tell you what they have in common they all produce a covenant between God and people with Noah, God made a covenant that he would never flood the earth again. With Moses, God made a covenant to be God of the people of Israel, that he would be their God and they would be his people. With David, <coughs> we, don't, we don't see it yet necessarily in this passage, he would make a covenant that he would never cease to have an heir on the throne of God's people. You may think, gosh, how can that happen? You know, this person would probably have to live forever or forever they would be happy having children that, and they, that kingdom would never fall. Well, obviously the kingdom of Israel fell, so who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, right? So we get that, of course, with Jesus, we get the whole new covenant that no longer do we have to sacrifice all these animals to have our sins forgiven, but that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. So we are not dealing with just a nice, cutesy little Sunday school story here 
we are dealing with something that is huge in the Bible. It's like one of the major chapters happening right here, major covenants that's about to happen where God promises there will be a ruler that comes from this dude, this David guy, and that ruler will last forever. And we now know him as the man called Jesus Christ. So Goliath shouts for 40 days, and the Israelite army is fearful and dismayed. In fact, if you could really, I mean, you know, just come out and say it. They'd lost the fight, and the battle hadn't even started yet. They were just waiting for the inevitable to happen. And some of you may say, but why? Why were they so afraid? The Israelites, they were the chosen people of God. He gave them his presence in the book of Exodus. God gave them what so many of us would love to see. There was a visible presence of God. During the day, it was a cloud, you know? It was this big whirlwind of a cloud. If you want to know where God was, you just look for the cloud. Oh, there he is. He's right there in the midst of us. Let's go touch it. Oh, wow, that's a cool cloud. Feel that? That's God. That's great. At night... He would be, that cloud would turn into a pillar of fire. Don't touch that one. But, you know, I mean, that, you know, pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. They had stories of God's presence being with them. There were memorial stones all over the country. Every time you went down to the grocery store, you'd pass by some memorial stone reminding the people of Israel of what God did for them in the past. That he had miraculously delivered them before. When they were slaves in Egypt, he sent 10 plagues to try to shake Pharaoh's will. And when Pharaoh wouldn't bend, finally the last plague, they lost the firstborn children. Pharaoh in his grief let the Israelites go. But then in his anger, he was gonna slaughter every last one of them. And what does God do? He opens up the Red Sea. They walk through the Red Sea. They go on the other side. And when the, the Egyptian army follows, the Red Sea closes in. Now they're in the middle of a desert, no food, no water. God provides water through a rock, food through the manna and the quail, these sort of cornflakes and chicken. So we were like, man, that's my diet right there, you know. Uh, I mean, God does amazing things. Their first major battle, their first major military engagement. Remember, these are not warriors. They're barely farmers. They're brick makers. They're slaves. They've never swung a sword. They've never lined up for battle. In their very first battle, as Moses lifts his hands, they defeat a professional and trained army. Why? Because the battle belonged to God, right? While they're in the promised land, uh, remember that city where they marched around the walls and the walls fell? What city is that called? Jericho, right? They all know this. You guys are like, I only know it because you keep ramming this down our throat. No, they knew this. They didn't separate God from their schools. They had this in first through eighth grade all the time. Yes, the walls of Jericho. Yes, Moses raised the head. Yes, the Reds. They knew it all. You've got to scratch your head and kind of say, you know what? If they were so filled with the mighty ways God delivered them in the past, why did they not believe that when Goliath stood in front of them that God would do the same? Why indeed? The only clue I can offer you is this. King Saul made them very prosperous. If you look at the end of the period of the judges to where King Saul, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, where King Saul becomes King Saul, 
Saul fortifies cities, spreads out his army, and makes this beautiful little perimeter. There's nothing wrong with that. Didn't disobey God in that. And in that perimeter, you see God blessing two things. Crops growing and women having babies. So there's tons of new little Israelite boys and girls running around. And there's all this food to feed them. In fact, they have so much food that they're selling it all over the place. There's no real poor people among them. They've all got their tract of land that they inherited from their ancestors. David didn't come from a particularly wealthy family, but he was what we would call the middle class today. Most of the people were middle class. They had money. They had houses. They had health care. They had retirement. They had all of their needs taken care of. You know what happens when you have all of your needs taken care of? You begin to wonder, why do I need God? Why do we need God? So the years are going by, and they're like, yeah, 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 the Red Sea. Yeah, 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 the walls of Jericho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now remember, th- when they said yeah, 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 it's not that they didn't believe they didn't happen. They could probably still see the ruins of Jericho at that point, right? I mean, not like they're, but it's kind of like that happened then. That's what God used to do. But now we have an army. Now we have King Saul. This is what God is doing now. And they had forgotten the one crucial thing that they needed when they were facing that Goliath. It wasn't that God had called them to face Goliath. It's that God had called them to trust God to bring down Goliath. That is what they lost. Now to be fair, to be fair, I have never fought a nine-foot man. (laughs) And I can't say that I would have had the grit to fight Goliath either. So I'm not going to pose myself out there as a hypocrite, but I will say one thing, and I mean this. I may not have the grit to face Goliath for myself unless he threatened one of you. If there was a nine-foot giant standing outside that door and he threatened you, you're my people, you're my family, You're my blood in Christ. You're my tribe. You're my village. You're everything to me. And if there was a nine-foot guy threatening you, I can't tell you how I would get on my knees, say, God, do whatever you got to do to me. I'm going to go out there and face him, and I'm going to watch you take that guy out. I might not do it for myself, (laughs) but I would do it for you any day of the week. It's called a shepherd's heart. And David had it because David was a shepherd. See, God sent an unknown delivery boy who he, God, had been privately training to the battlefield. And even though the Israelites had forgotten about God, God had not forgotten about them. See, David David was a nobody in a sea of nobodies and was never going to be a somebody. When Samuel went to his house to anoint him as king, Samuel didn't even think it would be David who would be anointed as king. He had taller brothers, better looking brothers, better qualified brothers. All right? He wasn't looking for David. When David came in, he was dirty. He was the runt. He smelled like sheep dung. 
That was the last person in the world that Samuel thought he was going to anoint as king. But God had anointed David, the nobody from Bethlehem. He was the youngest, shortest, most humble man of an aging father. He was a late-in-life child. He was a musician. We know that because he served in Saul's court for a while as a harpist. He'd play the harp and, the de- and Saul's demons would go away for a little bit. But he eventually was sent home. He was also a shepherd. And trust me, shepherds at that point didn't make much sound in society either. He was a delivery boy. In fact, he was delivering food to the soldiers of Israel when he first met Goliath, when he first heard Goliath. He was the kid that everybody yelled at, hey boy, hey boy, come here, I want some more cheese. I want you to cut it for me because my fingers are dirty. That was David. He was that guy. But David did, however, have three things that he had going for him. First one was this. David knew Israel's history. While the other men may have forgotten it as tales from Sunday school or elementary school from long ago, it was active in David's memory. You may say, now, Tom, how do you know that? Because we have his songs he wrote down the songs, psalms. In the, in the Bible, there's the book of Psalms, P-S-A-L-A-L-M-S. I always get that wrong, actually. Uh, he wrote down Psalms, and in the Psalms, David is writing about Israel's history. David is writing about God and the Red Sea. He's writing all of these psalms. He's singing them because he's a worshiper. So he's out there with the sheep writing and recall. He's got basically seminary out there on the sheep range. And he's instead of writing essays, he's writing psalms and he's singing them. Number one, David knew Israel's history. Second thing is, David had faced unbeatable odds before. He was a shepherd. His family's money depended on the sheep. If animals came off and took off the sheep, he'd fail the family. So one time a lion comes. David pries the sheep out of the lion's mouth, beats the lion down and kills it. Another time a bear comes. Now I'll tell you this, when I read that, I think to myself this. How many times in life do we take the safe play so often that we never face a lion or a bear, metaphorically? Don't go face a, a real lion and bear. <laughs> don't, and, don't, and definitely don't say Pastor Tom told me to do it. But, but metaphorically, you know, how many times do we take the safe place so often that we never allow God to show us what kind of man or woman we could be? And we never allow God to show us what kind of God he is through us. We play everything so safe, we actually don't have to live a life of faith. We don't have to put ourselves out there. No risk, no reward, nothing. As dry as vanilla, burnt toast. That was not David. David was out there. He put himself in situations where he needed faith. Oh, he could have let the lion drag off a sheep, but he didn't. He struck that thing down and killed it. He didn't let the bear run off with the sheep. He struck that bear down with kill. He said, hey, look, I have faced unbeatable odds before. This guy will be just like them. Why? Because David knew. If David knew anything, he knew this. 
It wasn't because he was so good that he killed a lion. It wasn't because he's so good that he killed a bear. God delivered the lion for him, and he delivered the bear. God was teaching him long before he ever met Goliath. And the third thing is, David knew that God had his back. Making time for God out there with the sheep had built within David a solid trust for the battle. And let's go here right now. I'm going to read, we're going to read the scripture. 1 Samuel 17. This is the elements of the battle between David and Goliath. In verse 43, Goliath says to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? What does this sentence mean? Goliath is ticked. He wanted a man to fight him. He wanted a warrior. He didn't want some whelp with a couple of stones and a sling. He wanted to see a guy with armor and a sword and an armor bearer. He wanted to do this contest. He wanted to beat someone easy because then what happens? You go back to the camp and they're like, yeah, well, they sent you the easiest guy out there. No, he wanted their best so that when he beat their best, everybody would know Goliath was the champion, the true champion. He's, hor- he's mad. Are you a dog that you come at with a stick? And it says, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Let me say, what does that mean? It means he said, God damn you. But he was saying, gods <laughs> damn you. I don't know, Baal damn you. All these gods that they had in ancient Philistia. And he said, come here, come here. He's probably getting his sword out, you know. Come here, this is gonna be so easy. I'm gonna grab you by the neck, run you through, throw you off, let the birds get you. This is no contest. Come here, come here. And I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, man, this whole thing takes place in probably like 10 seconds. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. You say, God damn me? Oh my goodness. I say, I am coming after you in the name of my God. And he says, the gods of the army who you have defiled, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. What is David's motive? Sure, it's to kill Goliath. Sure, it's to defeat the army, but what does he want more than anything else? He sees a whole army of his countrymen who have lost their faith. He says, I am doing this so that when they see the deed done, they will go, God is real. There is a God. It's all true. How could we forget? How could we forget? There is a God in Israel. He says, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. David's very clear. I haven't come to fight you. Uh, God's going to fight you. It might be through me or in spite of me, but God is going to make no mistake. This is God's battle. And it says, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And reaching into his bag while running, pretty good thing, he takes out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine in the forehead 
and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Scholars are divided as to whether or not uh, Goliath died from that blow, that, that it could have knocked him out unconscious. Perhaps David was not quite sure if that one stone did the job. So what does he do? He runs over to Goliath, takes his own sword, and cuts his head off. And I'm pretty sure decapitation means you're dead. David and Goliath exchange a few words, and in 10 seconds, Dave, Goliath is dead by a one-in-a-million shot from David. This battle gives us four clues about approaching problems biblically, and the first one is this. The size of the problem is not the real problem. It's the size of the faith to meet the problem that is the real problem. The size of the problem is not the problem. Goliath could have been 20 feet tall. Didn't matter. The size of the problem is not the problem. It's the size of faith, of your faith to meet the problem, of our faith, of all faith, to meet the problem. To the degree that we can remember what God has done and who God has made us to be and what God can do through us, we will march out in faith and meet those Goliaths. That's the first one. But the second one is just as important. The number of problems is not the real problem either. Last week, when I, I, many of you were very gracious. You enjoyed last week's message. And I had a whole bunch of giants up there on the screen. You remember that? I'm probably like 12 or 13 of them. And here's the thing I got overwhelmingly from almost all of you. Tom, I have many of those. Many of those. Somebody came up to me and said, I have them all. All right? The number of problems is not the real problem. Let me tell you this. Goliath was not the only giant that David faced that day. The first giant that David has to face was his own family. When he brought the food to his brothers and he heard Goliath and he said, well, what are we doing about this guy? Do you know what his brother's reaction was? Anger. What are you doing here? They probably slapped him upside the head. Who are you? Why are you talking? And who'd you leave those sheep with? Why don't you go back and tend the sheep and let the real men do the job, David? The first giant that David had to beat before he ever faced Goliath was his brothers. And how many of you, if you were really honest, some of the Goliaths in your life are members of your own family? A father, a mother, brother, a sister. Maybe a son or a daughter. Some of you are saying, all of them. All of the above. <laughs> Just keep going. It's all of them. Well, I want to show a little bit of a movie clip because sometimes it can be that our Goliaths are those who are closest to us and they mean well. They mean well. But what they're tr doing is they're transferring their giants, their giants of fear, their giants of anxiety, their giants of faithlessness onto us, even well-intentioned. Let's watch this real quick, and you'll see this in action. Dad, what are you doing here?
take a couple of weeks off. Grandfather saved all of his life to bring the family to this country. He got a good job in the stockyards. He had a nice little house in South Chicago. I was about 12. Somebody sold him on the idea he ought to move to the country and become a dairy farmer. Yeah. <laughs> right. He buys some land, you know, and gets a couple hundred cows. Within five months, every one of those cows was dead with disease. It was the depression. Couldn't sell the land. There was no work. So one day, he took off. Didn't come back. My brothers and me, we split up to live with friends and relatives. <sighs> Chasing a stupid dream causes nothing but you and everyone around you heartache. Notre Dame is for rich kids, smart kids, great athletes. It's not for us. You're a Rudiger. There's nothing in the world wrong with being a Rudiger. You can have a nice life. Frank is going to take over plan number two in a couple years. You make more than me and Johnny. You know he's in charge of the expansion program. I don't want to be Frank or John. Oh, I think if we had people line up, all of us at one point or another had somebody well-intentioned transfer their Goliath to us, or at least try to. And some of you took those, took that Goliath. Now I was thinking about it as I watched this the second time. Well-intentioned, with all love, I can't tell you how many people tried to talk me out of doing what I'm doing today. You'll never make it. You're too short. You're too fat. Your nose is broken in too many places. Seriously. You'll be poor. You won't have any money. And that was just in Washington. When I told them I was moving to California, it started again. You'd be amazed at how many people are struggling with Goliaths, and they want everybody to struggle with their Goliaths. So they'll try to give them to you. And all I could think was, you know what? God has brought me this far. i got to believe he'll take me further. And here I am, eight and a half years later.
God's still taking down the giants. Amen. I just I don't mean to make this about me, but I just as I was watching that, I just remember that so clearly. Having well-intentioned people try to talk you out of stuff. The number of problems is not the real problems. David overcame his brothers, and David overcame Goliath. Number three, power problems do not go away simply through the power of positive thinking. Some of you may be thinking, man, this is Tom's pep talk. You know, this is real good. You know, this, this is Tom's pep talk. <laughs> Let me tell you right now, this message is not you can do it if you try hard enough, last long enough, or fight hard enough. If you do that, you will probably be destroyed. Goliath will feed your body to the birds, and you will wind up standing next to the devil, realizing that you were a sucker for bad wisdom, bad theology. And bad thinking. The fact of the matter is, it's not through the power of positive thinking. Positive thinking puts too much on us. What did David say? The battle belongs to God. It's only in our surrender to him that we gain freedom from them. And then finally, this is what I just said, problems are overcome by God's supernatural power as he extends grace to us through Jesus Christ. We surrender to God, letting his spirit guide our path and bless our way as long as our eyes are on the problem they'll never get solved and they'll never go away but the moment we lock eyes with jesus boom the goliath begins to fall it's tempting when we read this story and by the way i i want to make this clear because somebody challenged me on this last service i am not trying to discredit other pastors when I say this there have been some well-intentioned and well-meaning pastors where when they preach this they they come on we got to rise up like David you know we got to aim high in life I mean I get that I understand that for many pastors they see this story that we are supposed to be a David that we are supposed to be David in the story and it's tempting to see ourselves as David in the story. But I disagree with them, and I disagree with that line of thinking, but I understand how we get there. When we watch movies, we always superimpose ourselves as the hero, don't we? You watch Rocky, or you watch Rambo, or we see Luke Skywalker, or Princess Leia, and we think, man, we want what they are. We want to be who they are. We want what they got. The attention and affection that they get, we want. The hard work it takes to get there, we want to do. The victory that they experience, we want to have, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we are not David in the story. But we naturally hear that. How many times have you heard things like, come on, people, David was a young person, and you young people, you can rise up too. Or how about something like this? <clears throat> I can, yeah, yeah, you need to do that. Just have a little more courage. Get off the couch, and you need to improve your aim in life just like David you know there's a we can unfortunately turn a lot of bible stories into self-help stories and what inevitably happens is we have renewed enthusiasm for a couple of weeks maybe even a couple of months but what we're really doing is putting on Saul's armor giving ourselves the illusion that we can face the Goliaths not realizing that God has never asked us to do that why doesn't self-help work? Because self-help is centered on humans. 
and I don't mean to insult anybody when I say this, but human beings are intrinsically flawed, imperfect, and inconsistent. If there's one thing I can tell you about me, I am inconsistent day to day. I don't know what my moods are going to be like. I don't know. I mean, not, not that I want, I'm a creature at all my reactions, but we're just, we're imperfect. We're inconsistent. We have our flaws, and we will take many of those to our dying breath. Human thinking and human power will never produce a supernatural result. And what I want for all of you is a supernatural result. Let me say that again. Human thinking. And human power will never produce a supernatural result. And I hope that's what many of you are looking for. We are not David in this story. Jesus is the real David in this story. Jesus is the giant killer. By studying Israel's history, David knew that God personally intervenes and fights for his people when his people are aligned with his cause. Sometimes it's direct like the Red Sea and sometimes it's indirect like Gideon and his army of 300 against 20,000. But on every page and in every story of the Bible, we see Jesus victorious, steadfast, able, trustworthy, mighty, loving, forgiving, endearing, and most of all, fearless. God didn't want David to beat Goliath because David had the biggest armor or because David had the most courageous heart or because David was just as tall. God wanted David to have the victory because David was the only one who trusted God with the battle. David was the only one who was willing to step out of the way and say, God, either through me or in spite of me, bring the victory. You've done it before. Do it again. Amen? A couple of things here. We're going to wrap up real quick. These are kind of the take-home things, stuff to do. First thing is this. Ask God to identify the Goliaths that either keep you up at night or keep you under the covers during the day. All right? Now, I know for many of us, we're like, man, I don't want to do that because we are kind of lazy sometimes, you know. I don't want to find out that I got this and this and this. And by the way, I'm not asking you to look for symptoms, right? Symptoms are, oh, I struggle with alcohol. I'm addicted to porn. I'm angry. I fight and I have a temper and all these kind of. No, those are the symptoms. That is the giant kind of coming out, so to speak. Every single one of those things has some sort of core that's driving it. And, and, and the thing I hate about sometimes uh, human counseling and addiction programs is they go straight for the symptom. We just need to retrain you to not want to drink. My question is, what drives you to drink in the first place? Fear? Anxiety? Anger? Control? Abuse? Abandonment? Let's get to that. That's the real Goliath. The drinking is just the symptom. So ask God, God, what is driving my motivations? that are keeping me from having the life you've called me to live. Number two, name the things you cannot control and say, you know what, I give it to God. I had to do this once. I told you last week. I have a huge problem with approval. I want, I need sometimes everybody to like me. There's just this approval thing. And you know what the worst part is? I can't get enough. 
It's, you'd think if 10 people said, oh, Pastor Tom, we love you. What a great message. You, many of you would go home and say, you know what? That's, I, met, I met my quota. No, I want it all. You know, I mean, there is not enough. Here's what you do when you find yourself in that situation. You know what, God? This thing with approval, I give it to you. I give it to Jesus. This now belongs to God in my life. Whether it's approval, anger, control, alcohol, whatever. Number three, get the giants to stop talking by doing what David did, reciting worship songs or Bible verses, right? One of the reasons why I spent four weeks on 2 Timothy 1.7 is so that we would all memorize it. What is 2 Timothy 1.7? For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Sound mind, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> right? And say that. Say that over and over like David did. Or, or worship songs. You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you. My personal style is I love jazz music. And there are, there are a couple of jazz stations here in town. And I listen to them occasionally. But I make sure sometimes, especially if I got a, like a good 20-minute drive, I turn on the worship station. I get that worship stuff going on. There's something about that, you know, where all of a sudden the Goliaths are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Number four, do not face the Goliaths alone. David didn't. We forget that. David had an army of support behind him. When you go to face your Goliaths, anxiety, depression, control, approval, enablement, laziness, selfishness, whatever it is, have an army of support behind you. David did. And you don't have to do it alone. It was many years ago, I was uh, at a church thing, and I don't know what happened, but I, uh, just listen, I, I just exploded, I don't even know why I exploded, well I do know why now, and in that explosion, I thought I was going to get kicked out of the church, <laughs> it was one of those, uh, maybe small, but when my temper gets going. It can be something very embarrassing. and So, you know, I went through a bunch of things in my life. And finally the pastor said, you know what? I I'm willing to pay for it. I'm going to send you to a Christian counselor. I remember I was offended when he said that. You think I need counseling? And I said that to him. I said, you think I need counseling? He looked at me and he said, no. He said, I think everybody needs counseling. <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that was a good one comeback. For a man who didn't have good comebacks, that was a good comeback. And uh, so I went and I saw her. And, you know, I, I did what most males do. I evaded, I, I you know, whatever. This ain't going to work. And I'm fine. And she began to poke and prod. And there's some things that happened when I was a child that I didn't realize were some deep things that were still there and she poked and prodded and all of a sudden at one point she, I just lost control uh probably scared her a little bit but I began hitting myself I was just lost control and I I just 
every emotion you could possibly imagine in 10 seconds began to fly out of me. Anger, crying, laughter. I mean, I think she... I think she thought that she literally like hit the crazy button on my soul and that's what happened. But you know, I'm glad I saw her because some guys don't come out alone. I needed somebody to poke and prod in areas I didn't want to go to. And thankfully I had a church, an army of support behind me to where this day I can say, although I still have a temper and although anger is something I still have to struggle with and certain points of my life doesn't rule and govern me like it did then. That Goliath fell. And if it fell for me, it'll fall for you.